Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then the angel of God who went before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And the night passed without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the, into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down upon the host of Egyptians and discomfited the host of Egyptians, clogging their chariot wheels, so that when they drove, they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from here, from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've heard us mention before the book entitled Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why, written by Amanda Ripley. It's a fascinating kind of study on human reaction and many times inaction in the face of disaster. She would examine many different tragedies such as uh, airplane crashes or shipwrecks, uh, things such as the Twin Towers when they were hit on 9-11, and look at the different variety of responses from the human beings, some who s survived and some who became so frightened that they didn't even try to escape. And she goes into research in this, and one of the things that she looks at is the work of a man named Ed Galea. Ed Galea moved to London in the mid-80s, and shortly after he had moved there, there was an airplane that caught on fire at Manchester. It actually never left the ground. The pilots were preparing for takeoff and starting to uh, taxi when they heard a loud noise, and so they basically pulled over to examine what was happening, and there had been an engine failure that had started an electrical fire. Uh, this fire would end up coursing through the plane, but there was no plane crash. They never left the ground, and yet still 
55 of the 137 people on board were unable uh, to survive, or they were not able to get off to survive. And when Ed Galea heard that, he just couldn't wrap his mind around that. How is it that that high number of people couldn't escape? And so he basically talked his way onto the research committee that was studying what happened in that plane crash. He had trained and gone to school. He was an astrophysicist. But when he moved to London, he became an industrial mathematician for the steel industry there. But once he joined that committee, uh, ever since, he's studied human reaction in the face of fire, whether it's been in buildings or airplanes or cruise ships. He has studied human reaction. Well, in that very first committee, they created the model of the plane to see how the fire would kind of sweep through the plane. And they found several things that contributed to the inability of people uh, to escape. They found in those days there were mechanical things and procedural errors. Uh, in those days, the people who sat in the escape rows weren't instructed on how to remove the escape hatch. And so they also didn't know when you remove the escape door, the evacuation door, it fell back inward. It was a 50-pound door, and then they had to do something with it to get it out of the way for people trying to escape. And the evacuation door was placed over a seat, and so it made it rather cumbersome to try to get out uh, that door. And the rows were really narrow. But it still, for Ed Galea, didn't explain how so many didn't get out. And in their research, they found that there were several people who were found in their seats. They died by uh, smoke inhalation, but they never tried to leave. They never made an effort to escape. Now, other people were climbing over the backs of seats, and other people were kind of helping others. But in all of his research, Ed Galea has found that there are a certain number of people who simply get stuck, so afraid of what's happening, and yet not able to uh, plan what to do to get away from it, they remain stuck, and those who should be able to escape don't. He named his research project, he started to develop software of evacuation programs looking at human response. It was aptly named Exodus. And he developed the year after the Manchester fire, and he's continued to work on it all these years, and now it's used in over 33 countries to help design buildings and vehicles to prepare for human response in the face of fire. Hasn't there ever been a time that you found yourself stuck, afraid to go forward? Maybe not in such dire circumstances, but maybe you're afraid of everything that's going on in life. Maybe there are bills kind of chasing after you with financial problems, or maybe you have health issues that you don't want to deal with. Maybe you have relationship problems that you can't face. And you don't know which way to go, and so you just are stuck in life, kind of bound to the spot. You're captive in that moment. And yet, 
Christ came to set us free. Free to enjoy a life where we are to be the people that we're called to be, created to be, and, and to serve others in the way we're called to do. And so this morning, I'm continuing in the sermon series, Let My People Go. We've been looking at the importance of freedom in our lives as Christians. And throughout this, uh, this sermon series, we have examined the life story of Moses, whom God used to help set the Hebrew people free from slavery and deliver them into freedom and onto the promised land. Now, today's scripture passage is kind of the culmination of a couple chapters. And so what transpired right before this passage was the last plague of the death of the firstborn. After that plague, Pharaoh had had enough and he said that people could just go. And so the Hebrew people left and they were led by the presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud or smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night so that they could travel by day or night and know and visually see the representation of the presence of God always with them. They came to the Red Sea and there they were kind of stuck. They were camping there. They couldn't go forward because of the Red Sea. They couldn't go back because that would be to return to Egypt. And so they were camping there. Well, sometime after uh, Pharaoh had let the people go, he kind of awakened to the practical side of him. And he said, what were we thinking? Letting the people go, the ones who serve us? And so he went back on his word and he uh, got his chariot and he gathered 600 chariots in the immediate area and then called for all of the chariots throughout Egypt to gather together to pursue the Hebrews. Now, when you're at camping by the Red Sea and there's not a lot going on, you can probably see an army of 600 to 1,000 chariots coming from a long ways off. And so the people were filled with fear because the army was coming after them. And so they cried out to Moses and they said, why did you bring us here? Were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? We told you to leave us alone and let us continue serving the Egyptians. And so Moses turns to God and God tells Moses, tell the people to go forward. And then you come to this place in the scripture where an angel of the Lord in the pillar of cloud moves to the back of the people. And then Moses stretches his arms out and God sends a mighty wind that separates the waters of the Red Sea where the people are able to cross over on dry land. Can you imagine where were they looking were they looking to each side of them? You've seen all the movie depictions of how the waters separate and you know, looking at the, that spectacle or maybe they were looking behind them to check, to look around the, uh, the pillar of cloud to see if the army was still in pursuit. Or maybe they were looking exactly where they're going, focused on the future following God. What I wanna ask you is where are you looking? There's a tendency when we get stuck to 
get focused on all the wrong things. And so there are three things I want to challenge you to look at to help you keep going forward and following God. First, look to where you're going. Many times when we get stuck, we focus on the things that we're most frightened of. Now, of course, we need to know what's going on so that we can address the problems. But if we only focus on the problems, they start to get bigger and bigger in our thoughts. We get held captive by our fears. At some point, you have to turn your gaze and look to where you're going to focus on the future ahead of you. Now, I love what happens in the scripture here. It says that the pillar of cloud or smoke moves to the back of the people. It continued to lead, but now it's also kind of hemming them in from behind. And of course, that served as a a powerful protection from the Egyptian army. The scripture says that the Egyptian army wasn't able to get near the people at all. But think of what else is also accomplished. It helps that if the people were to turn and look, instead of seeing the Egyptian army, what's the first thing they're going to see is this pillar of cloud, the presence of God. It was as if not only was God protecting them, but God was kind of blocking their view to take their eyes off the things that frightened them the most. When you get stuck, make sure you turn to God and you aren't just focused on all the problems. Focus on where you're going. A couple weeks ago, I introduced the book, The Daughter of Auschwitz. It's the true story of Toba Friedman, who was one of the youngest uh, people to survive coming out of the Auschwitz concentration camp. Toba was only four years old when she and her mother were sent to the concentration camp, and there were very few children allowed to live there. But just a miracle, Toba was allowed to stay with her mother in her mother's barracks for quite a long time. And there, Tova's mother had continued teaching Tova about how to avoid the attention of the Nazis. Now, she didn't sugarcoat anything in a way that seemed so harsh to tell a four-year-old child. Tova's mother explained to her that the Nazis will try to kill you if they can. But she didn't want Tova to focus on the fear. She wanted to give her practical strength and advice to help avoid that as much as possible. What she did was give Tova these little nuggets of control over her own life so that as much as possible she could be focusing on survival. And so Tova's mother taught her to never draw their attention. Always be aware of everything that's going on around you. And when you come to roll call, make sure as soon as they say your number, you say present. Don't cry in front of them. Don't draw their attention and never look them in the eye. For a long time, Tova was able to live with her mother there. But she, when she was about five and a half, became very ill. It turns out she came down with diphtheria and scarlet fever. She was sent to the infirmary, and the Jewish medics who served there were able to nurse her back to health. It took quite a long time, but she regained her health, 
Instead of sending her back to her mother's barracks, though, they took her to a part of the camp that only housed children. And so Tova was by herself, five and a half, and she tried to remember all of the examples her mother had given her, but understandably, she would forget some. Just a few months after she had been taken to this part of the camp, a woman approached her and gave her a little pouch on a string. And she said, this is from your mother because you are now six years old. It's your birthday. And Tova was elated because it meant that her mother was still caring for her and thinking of her. And when she opened up the pouch, there was a chunk of bread inside. Now, years later, she would find out that her mother stole a potato to trade for the bread, and she was discovered and beaten terribly for it. But in that moment, Tova was excited about this special gift. It was the best gift, the most precious gift she had ever received, and it kind of took on magical qualities. Because the thing that Tova was scared of the most at camp was starving to death. Now, she knew that there were many ways to die, but those seemed to happen off-site, and they were a little bit more abstract, but every day she saw someone who starved to death. And so this chunk of bread, she thought, would save her if she ever got that close to starvation. And so she decided she was going to save it, and if ever there was the moment she was close to death, she would take it out, and it would miraculously save her life. And so she put it under her pillow that night to save. That night, she was awoken by rats uh, scampering all around her, and they had found her stash. They had eaten the bread. They had eaten the pouch. There was nothing left. And Tova had this hard lesson in her dire circumstances. She had been so focused on her greatest fear she forgot the importance of looking to, what, to where she was going, to focusing on survival each and every moment. Thankfully, it was just a few months later that her mom heard that the Soviet army was approaching. And the Nazis were trying to round up all of the remaining survivors of the camp and march them onto another camp so there would be no evidence. And her mother knew that to go with the Nazis would, would be a death march. And so she and, and Tova hid, and there were 60,000 prisoners that went on the death march, and 7,000, two of whom were Tova and her mother, who avoided going with the Nazis. By the time that the Soviet army arrived, these people were starving to death. And so the well-intended soldiers offered them some of the stew that their cooks had uh, cooked up, and it smelled so good, Toba uh, ran to get in line, and her mother stopped her. And she said, look at the people who are starting to get sick. Our bodies can't handle this, and so we're just going to eat bread for the next few days. And so for the first couple of days, uh, she and her mother only ate bread, and after two days, her mother started to add a little butter to it. After five days, her mother added butter and a little sugar. And after several more days, they finally were able to eat the stew that was being offered. But by then, so many people in the camp had fallen deathly ill 
because they had eaten too much, too fast, and food that was too rich for their bodies to handle. Time and again, Tova's mother helped her to understand the reality, the fears, but to face the future and to focus on survival. When we get stuck, don't let your fears keep you there. Instead, look to where you're going. Second, make sure you're looking to the needs of others. Throughout the Bible, God over and over tells us that we are responsible for the needs of others. We are responsible to be concerned about others, even before ourselves. Now, what happens when you get stuck or you're facing lots of problems? You start to focus on those problems. And the more you focus on the problems, you're really focusing on yourself. And you don't mean to, but you're becoming more and more self-centered. And when we become self-centered, we're not free to live as the people that Christ has created us to be. And so I want to challenge you, the next time that you feel kind of bound in one place, make time and go and help someone. You might be surprised at what a difference it can make to you. Don't you remember how good you feel when you do something that's kind for someone else? Oh, it may seem a little self-serving to want to help others because of the way it will make you feel, but I actually think it's the way we're designed. God created us with a need to help others and to make a difference. And so when we do, of course, we're going to feel good about it because it feels natural. It feels like we're living as the people we were meant to be. And the, the better we feel, the more apt we are to help people. And so it continues in this beautiful cycle. We know that when we help others, we feel better. But I think part of it's because we're taking the focus off of ourselves. And so by helping others get unstuck and move forward, I think it helps us to get unstuck and to really live as the people we're called to be. Just two days ago, we had our youth force team return from uh, working down in Ardmore where they were helping others uh, <clears throat> renovate and rebuild their houses, repair their homes. And they came back. It was probably the hottest week of U-Force they said they ever had experienced. But they came back feeling so good about what they had accomplished. Think about Tova Friedman. I mean, it's obvious that she probably wouldn't have survived the concentration camp had it not been for the actions of her mother, and yet I also believe that her mother's focus on caring for her daughter gave her the resilience and strength she needed to survive as well. It's how we're designed to care for each other, to help one another get unstuck in life. In the book Unthinkable, Amanda Ripley tells the account of the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. Now, despite its name, the Beverly Hills Supper Club was a, an entertainment venue in Southgate, Kentucky, uh, just south of Cincinnati across the Ohio River, and it was a large venue. It had several banquet halls and a huge concert, concert hall. And on May 28, 1977, when the fire broke out, there was a wedding taking place. There were three different company banquets, and there was a large concert where over 3,000 people were expected. 
That night, a waitress noticed a fire that was breaking out in the walls between two banquets. And so one of them was the wedding reception. She went up to the bride and told her, you need to evacuate your guests because there's a fire. Now, first, the bride went into denial. This can't be happening on my wedding day. But then she looked over and she saw the flames kind of licking up the walls. And so she started shouting at her guests, you need to evacuate, there's a fire. She felt personally responsible because everybody there was there for her. And she was one of the last to leave, and then the, the room collapsed, and she was able to get all of her guests out. The back of her wedding dress was scorched. And then she and her new husband were part of a human chain helping pull people out of other places in the building to bring them to safety. There was also a busboy named Walter Bailey. He was 18 years old at the time. The waitress told him about this fire and he didn't believe her either. And so he went to go check it out and he noticed the door of the room where she had talked about, uh, there was puffs of smoke coming out from beneath. And he remembered his high school physics class. He loved science. And he knew that that meant there was pressure building behind that door and he kept the door closed and he went to the banquet that was taking place on the other side of the wall and he told them they needed to evacuate because there was a fire. He went to the concert hall and it was already starting to fill up. There was the, sh the opening act was beginning and he told a staff member, we need to evacuate because of a fire. Then he left and he went out into the entry space and there were lines of people uh, waiting to get in. And so he told them all, there's a fire, follow me. And he led them all outside to safety. By the time he came back to the concert hall, he noticed nothing had changed, nobody had left. And so he went up on stage and he took the microphone from one of the comedians who was performing and he told everybody, there's a fire and you need to evacuate. There's a door to the left, to the right, and right behind you, please leave now. Most did. The Beverly Hills Supper Club is an example that we've talked about before that people became so frightened of what to do that after everything, after the fire was put out, everything was uh, cleaned and made safe, the firefighters came in and they found a few tables where people were sitting around the table, uh, completely sitting up. They had been overcome by smoke inhalation but they never had tried to even move or escape. But thankfully, most people did. 167 people lost their lives that night, a terrible tragedy, but I have to think that so many more would have died that night had it not been for a few people uh, working to the needs of others. This was a huge building, a maze of rooms, and there were far too few escapes doors, hard to find. And so had it not been for these people showing the way, there were no sprinkler systems, no smoke detectors, and there was no kind of loudspeaker system to get everybody's attention at once. Had it not been for a few people, I have to think that the death toll would have been far higher. And so when you find yourself stuck, maybe you're fearful of whatever's going on in your life or things are piling up and it just seems too much, remember it's not just about you. There are people who need you. 
turn and, and do something for someone else, and it can help lead you forward as well. And third, make sure to look to God and remember the love that God has for you. To this day, people of the Jewish faith remember the Exodus story to remind themselves of when God set their people free from slavery and took them into freedom and to the promised land. Because to intentionally practice the discipline of remembrance helps you to see that God's love in the past is still present today and will lead you into whatever the future holds. For us, we need to remember the love that God has for us. And one of the things you hear us discuss over and over again is keeping a gratitude journal. We ask you to write down three, at least three things every day for which you're grateful. Now it helps you in that moment because you see day after day, you have so many blessings in life. You have so many things that you can give thanks for. But it's also a tool because if you ever get stuck, go back to the gratitude journal. Go back and remember the ways that God has blessed you in the past. And you can be reminded of how God's love is still present today and will help you face the uncertainty of the future. Of course, when we don't know which way to go or what's going to happen, it can be unnerving. And that's why we need to practice remembering God's love because God is the one who will lead us into the next step. Luca uh, Trampanzi is an Italian author. He's born and raised in Italy. And when he was just 14 years old, his best friend was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. And Luca decided that he was devoted to his friend. While his friend's parents worked during the day, Luca would stay there every day with him so he wouldn't be alone. And as his friend became sicker and sicker, he would spend more time with him. He would accompany the family to all of their hospital visits, and he would be there to the very end. It was painful and it hurt Luca deeply uh, to see his friend pass away. But he also knew and had this wonderful lesson at such a young age that even though it was painful for him, he could see that his presence was a blessing to his friend. And so that kind of experience changed his outlook and he realized he wanted to give back to the people who were in those kind of situations. He started volunteering at a church in Naples that had a ministry program for adults who were critically ill and for children who had medical concerns. He would travel to Africa and India um, and work in programs that help children with disabilities. And he and his friends would actually start a nonprofit to help children with special needs. Well, all of this care for others just kind of uh, alerted him. He wanted a family. He loved caring for people, and he wanted to be able to care for his own children. By the time he was in his late 30s, he wasn't married, and he started to realize he wanted to go ahead and adopt a child. 
In 2017, Italy lifted its ban that prevented single parents from adopting children. And so Luca just threw himself into it. He went to all the classes and took all of the lessons and finally became certified to be able to adopt. But as a single gay man, he was told that he would never be able to adopt a newborn and he would only be able to adopt a child that had special needs. Now for Luca, that didn't throw him off because all of his life he had kind of this special, um, he was attuned to the needs of children with uh, different kinds of medical needs and so he felt like he was perfectly suited for that. In July of that year, he received a phone call about a month-old baby girl named Alba. Alba was left at the hospital by her mother because she was born with special needs. And there had been 20 different couples who were brought in to meet Alba and all rejected the opportunity to adopt her. And so the officials finally called Luca and he was thrilled. He raced over to the hospital and the moment they put Alba in his arms, he knew that she was his daughter. And so he adopted her. She has now just turned six years old and their family is thriving. And it's hard to deny that God hadn't brought them together for each other. When he was told that because he was a single gay man, he could only adopt children with special needs, it might have been easy for him to feel slighted by that or slighted on behalf of the child he wanted to adopt. Or it could have been easy for him to feel overwhelmed at the prospect of adopting a child that would come with uh, other medical concerns, and yet he was fully prepared for it. God had been working in Luca's life all of those years through all of those experiences because God wanted the perfect parent for Alba. I'm convinced that God helped those 20 parent or those 20 couples to see that they weren't called to be the parents of Alba because God had someone else in mind. Because of God's love for Alba and because of God's love for Luca, God had the best in mind for both. Today, Luca raises Alba to, to see her own gifts and to see the impact that she can make on the world. He's written two children's books uh, talking about children with special needs, not as uh, limitations, but to see the special ways that they can make a difference in the world. Luca, obviously for Alba, as a little infant, she wouldn't have been able to foresee or worry about her future. But for Luca, he could have been worried about would he ever be able to adopt, what child. And, and yet, because of his devout faith, he knew that God loved him and that God would take care of his future as God did. God will prepare us for the future we have as well. For Luca... He dotes on his daughter. If you ever see video clips, you can tell that he adores her. He has a, a large family, lots of friends, and they all love and adore her. And Alba is being raised knowing that God loves her and that she is loved by so many. But she's also raised to know that the world isn't just about her. She is called to help others and make a difference in their lives. 
And just recently, Luca received a text message from the mother of a little boy who attends kindergarten with Alba. And included in it was a little picture of Alba holding hands with this woman's son. And it was taken from the back as the two children were entering the classroom. And the mother said, thank you so much for Alba because she's helped my son be far less anxious about going to school. Already, Alva is making a difference. God has the best in mind for her life as well as Luca's. If you ever get stuck, remember that you weren't created to be there. You were set free by Christ to live life as the person God has created you to be and to do the things that we are called to do. So look to where you're going, look to the needs of others, and be sure to look to God and remember the love that God has for you. And it will help you to go forward following him. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the God who loves you. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's all take a moment to lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.